Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 15th, 2011, and my guest is Jim Otteson, Joint Professor of Philosophy and Economics at Yeshiva University. His latest book is Adam Smith, and he is also the author of Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life. Jim, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Russ. Our topic for today is, not surprisingly, it's Adam Smith. Uh, We're going to talk about a number of issues that Jim has insight into, and I want to start with something that as a very amateur student of Smith, uh, I find um, uh, confusing at times, which is David Hume. Uh, David Hume is a famous philosopher. Yep. I, I took a number of philosophy classes in college, so I know I read some Hume and I heard of him. He is Adam Smith's good friend. What do I need to know about Hume to help me understand Smith? And what do I need to know about Hume in general, if anything? Oh, you What's he important for? He was very important and for a, n- a number of different reasons. Um, so just in general, a couple of things you should know about Hume. He was one of the principals, alongside Adam Smith and a few others, of the Scottish Enlightenment. That's this period in the 18th century in Scotland, which was a period of really astonishing learning. At, at the, for- the people who were at the forefront of almost every discipline of human inquiry were in Scotland during the 18th century. It was really an, an astonishing period. Hume was one of the central people there, um, and arguably, and in fact, I think this is true, he's the greatest and most brilliant philosopher ever in the English language, um, and that's saying a lot. Um, and this, of course, was, um, that includes people like John Locke, who had preceded him and all of the greats who've come after that. Um, one of the things about Hume that's interesting is uh, because, maybe because he was as brilliant as he was, he never spent a whole lot of time on any one topic. So... Um, He wrote uh, one of the great works of philosophy as a fairly young man, a treatise of human nature. Um, As he says, it fell dead born from the presses. (laughs) Nobody paid any. He said he couldn't even excite any enthusiasm from the zealots about it. Um, So he spent uh, a little bit of time later on in his life breaking it up into different um, smaller pieces. He rewrote them in ways that he thought might be more palatable. Um, And then he was the author of numerous essays, most of which are just absolutely brilliant, Um, also a still influential uh, multi-volume history of England. So quite a bit of stuff from Hume. Um, A couple of philosophical things that you should know about Hume. Um, He's generally regarded as a skeptic, quote-unquote. That's a little more complicated than you might think, but the general view of Hume is that um, he was interested in and explored the limits of human cognition. Um, he thought that it was often the case that people believed they were able to know things that they, in fact, weren't able to know. Um, and that insight um, he pursued in many different ways in his essays and his uh, longer works, um, one of them with respect to what we now think of as the philosophy of science. Um, so one of Hume's um, still, uh, one of his insights that we still pay a lot of attention to is that um, is a question about what we know about causality. When we see that X happens and when X happens, Y happens, um, do we perceive a cause? So Hume thought, no, we don't perceive a cause. What we perceive is two events. One happens and another happens. What we now call correlation. Correlation. Um, so suppose it ha- every time you see X, then there's Y. And suppose you've seen it 100 times. 
does it follow from that that the next time you see X, there must necessarily be Y? And his answer is no. Um, now, it may be true, but based on what we're able, to, uh, we're able to perceive, what we can observe in the world, we can't know with certainty that uh, Y will uh, ensue the next time we see X. So this was a level of skepticism that other philosophers hadn't quite worked out in the way that he worked out. Now, Hume is not a fool. Um, as he said, uh, one, of his, one of my favorite sayings of his is, um, amidst all your philosophy, be still a man. So even if as a <laughs> metaphysician, you know, we, we want to know what exactly are the limits of human knowledge, but don't forget that when you leave your office, go have a beer and hang out with your friends, and you're still a human being. Correct, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but this skepticism that, um, about the, the limits of human knowledge, um, this, as I said, um, ha affected a lot of his thinking. And um, another major area that affected us, you know, Hume, who was clearly the most brilliant philosopher of his time, um, and by the time he was uh, in uh, middle-aged, he was also the most famous intellectual in Scotland and one of the most famous in all of Britain, never had an academic job. Uh, he was put up for the professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, um, wanted to have the job, um, but he was denied the job because he was a skeptic. And the view was, at the time, that you couldn't very well be a professor of moral philosophy unless you professed morality, moral philosophy, and you couldn't really profess morality if you weren't a certain kind of Christian. And because Hume had expressed various skeptical ideas about what we can know about God and what we can know about the designer of the world, um, he was thought to be unfit to hold uh -huh. the position. So he never did hold the position, which was another it was something of a uh, disappointment to him. Um, but... Hume was a lifelong bachelor. Um, we have some evidence that he uh, had interests in various ways. Uh, he may have even proposed to at least one person. There's an, a perhaps apocryphal story about him having proposed to a woman who said no because he was too fat. Um, <laughs> he was a bit of a rotund man. Um, uh, the world is maybe better for it or worse. Hard to know. Hard to know. Um, the ladies in France loved him, so he spent some time in France, and the fine ladies all liked to have him over for tea, and uh, they liked to listen to him speak in his funny accent and <laughs> um, and regale them with stories. Um, as he apparently said, uh, everyone loves him, but no one loves him. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so he's a bachelor, um, but he, ca he came to know Smith when uh, Smith came to Edinburgh, um, in the 1750s, after, he had, after Adam Smith had received his education, um, he returned to Edinburgh, started giving some lectures on what we think were what would eventually become the material of the theory of moral sentiments, which was published in the first, for the first time in 1759. Um, he got to know Smith and Hume got to know each other there. And during the time Smith then later on was working on the wealth of nations and then throughout the rest of their lives, they were very close friends. So what's the intellectual influence that that's relevant for Smith and and Hume's uh thinking how, how did how did um how did Hume influence Smith's work if if at all um well that's a matter of some scholarly dispute um but there probably are at least some ways in which that is um in which Hume clearly influenced Smith um one of them is so uh, Smith's first book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments, came out in 1759. And as many listeners know, did a six-part podcast with Dan Klein. It's up on the web at eddiecontalk.org. So if you have not read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, that is a place to start. Recommended highly. It's a wonderful book. I agree. Um, and that book went through six editions in Smith's lifetime, um, each one receiving at least some changes, some of them fairly substantial changes. So one of the changes, if you're looking for this sort of thing, as scholars do, um, you'll notice that in the first edition of the Theory of Moral Sentiments, there's quite a lot more, as we might think of now, religious language. 
Um, now, some religious language persists throughout the editions. But in subsequent editions, Smith takes away some of the stronger language. So in the first edition, there's a passage on atonement um, that sounds very much like something you might get from Calvin, um, where we're worms before God, and even our best endeavors can't amount to anything before God, and we need to be conscious of our littleness. And um, there's, some, there's some very robust language along those lines. Well, in later editions, Smith got rid of that. Um, and there are other ways in which religious language in the early editions gets changed, altered. Um, some Perhaps due to Hume's influence. We well, think. that's the question. Yeah. So why would that be? Was Hume changing his mind? Uh, sorry, was Smith changing his mind? Um, was, he, was he hearing the voice of Hume in his ear the as he was revising? Yeah. Right. Um, and so that could very well be one way um, that, in, that there was some influence from Hume on Smith. What about... His view of human nature. What about Smith's uh, – Smith has very particular ideas about our human nature. They, the theory of moral sentiments is filled with it, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so is The Wealth of Nations, and we're going to be talking about both those books in a minute. But is there any suggestion that Hume's vision of, of cognition or human nature generally is, is – Smith is on the same page? Uh, yes, I think so. There's quite a bit, in fact. Um, and uh, one essay of Smith that still uh, exists that, um, that is often uh, – less often read today is A History of Astronomy. So Smith wrote a, right. um, an essay about uh, where astronomy and some aspects of what we might think of as physical sciences came from. Um, and there he gives an account of human cognition that could have been lifted right out of Hume. So um, especially our knowledge of causation and um, the limits and the, the dependence of what we know on our actual observations, um, the contents of the human mind and the way in which they're, are, the, um, they're filled by our um, observations and experiences and how, how we can't know things that we haven't previously perceived, all of that is right out of Hume. So there's quite a bit of that. But there's also, um, and this is maybe more relevant to the, um, to the audience that we'll have, there are also a number of similarities, we'll say, between um, Hume's views on, um, on what gives rise to things like uh, rules about contract, rules about property, um, rules about exchange, where those come from, what influences them. A lot of those insights that Hume had that were maybe not quite as uh, systematic as um, later thinkers would work these out, but you see a lot of those insights influencing uh, Smith as well. Okay. Well, let's move on to Smith in particular. Thanks for that thumbnail on uh, on David Hume. Uh, Smith writes two books, one very famous, uh, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Um, his second book, which was his first book, his second book in stature and fame is The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which as you mentioned was first published in 1759, revised six times, the last time 1790. Uh, shortly the before year, he died. Shortly before he died. So the theory of moral sentiments brackets uh, the wealth of nations in a certain sense. It, mm -hmm. It's both written before and after. Mm -hmm. And a number of people have raised what has come to be called the Adam Smith problem. And I, let's turn to that, which is that to take a caricature of the problem, uh, the wealth of nations is about the virtues of being self-interested and the theory of moral sentiments is about the virtues of being altruistic, benevolent, and uh, respected by your peers. They seem to be written, you could argue, by two different people. Um, clearly, were written by the same person. No one I mean, has suggested that uh, that one of those books was ghostwritten 
uh, under Smith's name, which is a way some people solve these kind of problems with really old books. But in this case, that it's was not, not a, the case. Here. It's not yeah. a plausible story. Uh, they're both very well written. I would I would add uh, a lot of a lot a lot of things that Smith wrote. He was not the first person to write about the concepts that he writes about, and yet his treatment survives and thrives partly because I think he's such a, a great stylist as a, as a writer of English. Mm-hmm. So he writes these two books that seem to be one way you could either say or they're orthogonal to each other or they're even contradictory uh, in terms of their view of human nature. Uh, what's your take? Well, it is a big issue. And for full disclosure, I myself have contributed to the discussion. So sure. um, we've been uh, – people have been talking about this. You know, In the 19th century, it was uh, initially German scholars who claimed to have found this problem. <laughs> And uh, you know, being uh, very imaginative with uh, with their terms, they called it Das Adam Smith Problem. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the, as this issue came down to English-speaking scholars in the uh, end of the 19th century and going into the 20th century, of course, English-speaking scholars being much more imaginative, they called it the Adam Smith Problem. There you go. Um, <laughs> so it still comes down to a state, what exactly, and the problem is how do these two books go together? Um, and one thing to think about is if they are contradictory, let's assume for a second that there is some kind of contradictory account of human nature or a contradictory account of human motivation. Um, if they are, that really speaks very poorly for Smith because it, yes, was, it, it, it wasn't just – I mean he only published two books in his, in his lifetime. Correct. It was just these two books. Yeah, and he spent and, a lot of time on both of them. And as, as you said – one book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he was revising throughout most of his adult lifetime, including all the way up until just shortly before he died. And The Wealth of Nations, he also went through three editions, and he, and he made changes. So he was revising the two books side by side. First for, edition of The Wealth of Nations is 1776. 1776. Third, roughly. Do you know the third one? Uh, 1789. Whoa. Wow. So they, they were, these, these were being revised by him at the same time. Yeah. So if they were contradictory, boy, that doesn't speak well for Smith. He put on one hat. He was wearing a, some kind <laughs> right. of There was the, the Jekyll and the Hyde yeah. uh, Adam Smith. Um, Different tartan plaid cape when he was writing each one. Yeah. Right. Now, now that being said, so, um, so I, I think we can reject out of hand, or I reject out of hand the idea that they're, that they're contradictory. That, that's not a very charitable interpretation of, of how to put the two books. That being said, there are some curiosities. Um, for example, in The Wealth of Nations, which is the second one, um, he never refers to his first book. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's no itself. reference at all to the only other book he wrote. <laughs> yeah. um, or vice a, versa, right? It's well, just, yes, yeah. that's, that's true. Um, and there's also no reference in The Wealth of Nations to many of the central concepts that he develops in the theory of moral sentiments, like the impartial spectator. Um, Which or, briefly describe. Well, in the theory of moral sentiments, um, the impartial spectator is the name Smith gives to the kind of uh, heuristic device we can use for figuring out whether what we're thinking about doing is the thing we ought to do or not. Um, we can ask ourselves, what would an impartial spectator think? So the the idea behind, for this is that um, if we – now, this this is not a Rawlsian – behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, a John Rawlsian veil of ignorance. This is someone who actually knows everything about us that we ourselves know, knows our situation fully, but has no stake in what we're about to do. And so Smith thought, if you want to know whether you should do what you're thinking about doing, ask yourself, would such a person approve of what you're thinking about doing or not? Mm-hmm. And that's actually a surprisingly powerful it's thing. A phenomenal, um, really and, interesting idea. And, once, once you've encountered it, and he talks about it constantly in the he does. book. Uh, Sometimes he calls it the man in the breast, right. sort of the person you carry alongside you, uh, right. inside you. Right. Uh, he also calls it the uh, vicegerent of God yeah. upon earth, yes. um, which is another interesting way of thinking about this. 
Um, like the angel on your shoulder. That's right. And he doesn't talk about the devil on your shoulder, by the way. He doesn't, have, <laughs> he doesn't open up to the possibility that the impartial spectator could be cheering you on to do something not so nice. But yeah. he's, he presumes a certain benevolence about that impartial spectator. Well, uh, I, I think he thinks that, um, that if your moral sentiments have developed in a normal way, um, allowing for there to be exceptions for people for you know at the at the extremes at the margins, um, then the impartial spectator will give you pretty good advice. Um, now that doesn't mean you'll always follow it, and it in particular doesn't mean you'll always ask for it. Um, but the impartial spectator will give you pretty good advice. I mean, in any case, so, so I, uh, I derailed you. You were no, saying it's not in the wealth of nations. Never no, talks about right, it. And, and that's one of the central contributions Smith makes to moral theories: this notion of an impartial spectator. And he explains in great detail how the perspective of this impartial spectator develops over time, what the power of this perspective is. None of that's in the wealth of nations. None of that's in the wealth of nations. So um, that's curious. Um, I mean, imagine if you had only written two books in your career in your life. Um, and uh, do you think you would refer to the first one and your second? Um, I mean, I do already. I mean, I think I'm one of the chief sources of my citations in the citation, <laughs> referring to my own stuff later on. <laughs> sure. Um, Common so, practice. Yeah, so, so, so that's all very curious. Um, and what some people have said is, well, this indicates that there's some deep problem. Um, now, one way of thinking about the problem I think we can, dis- we can dismiss with uh, fairly easily as well. The theory of moral sentiments does not say that human beings are altruistic and the wealth of nations says they're selfish and therefore there's, that, that, that's, the, that's a caricatured view. Um, what the wealth of nations discusses is certain kinds of human relations and the dynamics of certain kinds of human relations in specific social settings. With the theory of morals, in particular, market settings. What the theory of moral sentiments discusses is a much broader range of human behavior that includes not just exchanges with strangers from faraway lands when they're making woolen coats and other things like that, um, but exchanges with friends and family and people with whom we have intimate and familiar connections. It's a very different set of motivations and a very different set of proper and improper sentiments. Um, So... In the theory of moral sentiments, when Smith talks about one of the fundamental social desires he thinks all human beings have is the desire for mutual sympathy of sentiments, this is not saying he thinks that we should that we pity one another. Um, what he's suggesting is he's now making a descriptive claim. He thinks this is a fact about human nature, that all of us genuinely desire to see our own sentiments, our own thoughts, feelings, judgments, whatever they are, about the things we care about, We want to see those echoed in other people um, that we care about. And he thinks that's just a fact of human nature. So it doesn't mean, so the sympathy of sentiments you and I have, um, it's not that I feel sorry for you. um, Rather, it's It's that. Sympathy means more harmony. It means a harmony or a concord. Those are other words he uses. So it means that if you and I see someone else behaving, suppose we go to a lecture um, and uh, the lecturer is giving a talk and I lean over to you during the lecture and I say, boy, this guy's full of it, isn't he? And you say, well, I actually think it's brilliant. Well, then we're not having a sympathy of sentiments. Then we have an antipathy of sentiments. And or to take a, maybe a, a more moral issue, an issue of morality, someone takes a phone call who's sitting in the front row, and I say, boy, that's rude. And you say, well, come on. Really, sometimes you have to take a call. Right. That would be another example, right, of where our, we, would not, we would be unsympathetic with each other and – I would have been unsympathetic with the caller's decision. The, the that's right. Person's decision to take the call. Right, and this would imp- this would prompt uh, you to have a negative judgment, um, disapprobation towards the person who took the call, um, and perhaps I wouldn't. 
Um, but between you and me now, we are not enjoying a sympathy of sentiments. Right. So Smith's view is that, um, I mean, in a case like that, maybe it's relatively trivial, but Smith's view is that um, that's, uh, that, that's slightly uncomfortable. We don't like that feeling. We much prefer to have, a feeling, have the feeling where we have generally the same views about things. Um, so Smith thinks this is a brute fact of human nature. We just desire this. But he thinks what that, what that, the, the purpose that serves, it acts like a centripetal force in human society. It pulls us toward one another. We want to make community and have communities and associations with people who have roughly the same sentiments about things that we do. Um, and this allows this, so beginning with this desire for mutual sympathy of sentiments and the fact that we all mutually desire it, Begin, this begins the process of creating communities for human beings. So this is Smith's explanation and the mechanism he, ex he uses to explain the creation of human communities, and not just their creation, but their dissociation and their reassociations and the creation of new ones over overlapping time. Overlapping and there are communities over, that we may have with each other. I may be in three and you're in two. and Exactly, or you may be in dozens and I may be in dozens of various different kinds. And he also says, my favorite... Uh, one of my favorite and most provocative lines in the book is uh, man wants to be loved and to be lovely. Mm. Um, man wants – we want the, the affection and respect of our peers and we want it to be earned. That's right. Uh, so that's another reason that if you judge something in a particular way, either the quality of it as a, aesthetically or the morality of a, of a judgment, uh, I want you to like me so I may find myself being drawn to your – assessment in sympathy of a different kind of sympathy to be so that we can form this community. Otherwise, we've got this tension and discord. Right. And, and <clears throat> you know, the way this develops, and it really is a kind of evolutionary account for Smith, um, it develops in each individual over time. Um, we're not born with moral sentiments. We're born as amoral creatures, he thinks. We just have desires and wants, and that's it. Um, but by the time we become adults, um, we have a very, we're highly moralized. We have a very sophisticated set of moral sensibilities. Um, and this process takes place over time in each person's lifetime with these multiple thousands of interactions we have with other people. And one of the things that relates to the point you just made, one of the things that we will become aware of at some point in our development from childhood to, um, to adulthood is that we ourselves disapprove of others when they're phonies. Mm -hmm. When they're pretending to be something that they are not. That's what, I mean, we disapprove of lots of things, but that's one of the things that we disapprove of. Um, and that, fact starts to figure into our creation of our own internal impartial spectator, our own internal conscience. Mm -hmm. um, so when we become aware of ourselves that we're doing that, we're receiving praise for something we don't really deserve, we didn't really do, um, or we're being blamed for something that we didn't do, either one, we realize that that's an uncomfortable thing. Um, and that can act as a subtle, um, that feedback acts as a subtle incentive to align ourselves with the kind of behavior that we ourselves would approve in other people. Um, I mean, and one of the brilliant things about this is that, um, as far from my perspective, is that um, this mutual adjustment of moral sentiments that um, people engage in as they create these communities, they interact with one another, um, it's not designed. There is no person who is saying, here's how you should behave and we're going to enforce it. This is a completely bottom-up emergent process for Smith. The commonality, so we have certain common features of human nature. We have scarce resources, limited um, knowledge, um, a desire for mutual sympathy of sentiments. There are some other facts that we have about in our common circumstances. 
Um, and these will give rise to fairly, we can make some predictions about the kinds of associations people will make given the nat their natures. Um, but the development of moral sensibilities and the development of a, a systematic or systematized moral, um, moral philosophy in an individual person and their, and their conscious, conscience, um, that's something that is not centrally designed. Um, it's not something that's, that somebody from the top um, creates. So there's no great moral lawgiver, he thinks, who wrote all the moral rules that we need to follow, and, our, and then at some point we learn them, we memorize them, and we implement them. That's not how morality and etiquette – that's not how these rules work. In that sense, of course, he's very Hayekian, right? right. Influenced Hayek, presumably, right. his understanding of, of these kind of, of social norms, traditions, all kinds of things that mm -hmm. Hayek defends, even though on certain individual <laughs> cases they might not make sense to us. Um, at the same time, Smith uh, finds a divine source for the mechanism. He says the all-wise author of nature, I think he calls him right. – Put these urges in us to be liked and to be respected by others. Um, the other other comment I wanted to make is that uh, your remark about phoniness. He does. He's very aware of the fact that we self deceive, yes. and that although we don't want to be seen as phonies in our own eyes, uh, we also uh, may be blind to that. Uh, we may. Uh, he said – I think he says if we saw how others saw us, we couldn't live for an instant. It would be too painful, right? Because we'd see that sometimes we're phony or pretentious or whatever. Right. And um, and then the other line I never – I always remember is, you know, bold is the surgeon whose hand doesn't tremble when he operates on himself, which he quotes as an aphorism of the day. It must have been a, a, a well-known uh, – it seems that's how he quotes it. Mm -hmm. And um, so even though we want to be authentic, we want to be loved and lovely, we want to be – earned the respect of others, it's possible that sometimes we deceive ourselves yeah, and uh, don't fix the flaws that others see in us. So what – so uh, absolutely. So we, we're also naturally partial, as he says. Uh, we're partial to ourselves. Yep. We're also partial to the people we love and to our family and friends. We're partial to them as well. And we tend to want to take our own perspective over the perspective of others. Um, and that's even in good faith. Even if we're um, trying to be objective, that's a natural part of our, of, uh, our psychological makeup. But for Smith, what this means is um, that, as he says, intercourse with others, meaning communication, society with other people is absolutely crucial for the proper and healthy development of um, moral sensibilities because other people won't be inclined to indulge you quite as much as you are. So um, having regular exchange and experience with other people, um, seeing how they judge not only oneself but others as well, um, this is a necessary corrective to our own partiality and other kinds of partialities. We see how people who don't have a particular stake in my life or in me, how they judge my behavior. Um, that's absolutely crucial. Um, and in fact, that's a, that's a deep part of the explanatory mechanism that Smith develops. Um, you may remember that he has this uh, thought experiment in the theory of moral sentiments about a solitary islander. He says, he asks whether... Um, if it were possible for a man to grow from childhood to adulthood without any interaction with another person, grew up on an island, never um, exchanged a word or a thought with another human being. Um, Smith asked – It's the Tarzan <clears throat> yes, conceit, or the, right? Or the, the Robinson – or sort yeah. of a Robinson – except yeah. a Robinson Crusoe from, uh, from birth. Yeah, up. correct. Um, I just shipwrecked so, you. So, right. So Smith asks the question, would such a person have moral – properly moral sensibilities? And Smith's answer is no. 
What he might have is likes and dislikes. This tastes good to me. That doesn't taste good. I like this bird. I don't like that bird. I like this flower. I don't. Yes, that I you like might have. Sunrise more than sunset. Or sure, that's all good. fine. But this was improper of me to have done. No, would have no idea about that. And the reason for that, he thinks, is because he doesn't, as Smith says, have the mirror that society gives to us of our own behavior. So yes, we're partial to each other. But it's not just that we're partial. It's that in. Interchange, in, uh, uh, talking with others, interacting with others actually creates the process of a moral agency. We become moral agents when we interact with one another. And if we're not, to the extent that we're not doing that, we are diminished in our moral agency. So none of this is in The Wealth of Nations, except there's a little bit of it. Um, so, to my eye. So, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so um, part of the argument, in fact, the central part of the uh, a central part of the argument that I made in my uh, book that you mentioned, um, Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life, is that what Smith was that I think that what Smith was getting at in the theory of moral sentiments was not just the particular explanation, very detailed and uh, rich, sophisticated explanation of human moral psychology, um, but also what he was interested in is trying to account for large-scale human social institutions. Where do these rules come from? And how is it that human beings can observe rules without being aware that they're observing them? How is it that rules can change over time without anybody being in control or of the process? Um, and there's, no, there's no memo <clears throat> that goes out. There's, there's no, no memo sign that goes that out. Says, yeah. Uh, don't cut in line right. at, at the grocer. It, it just comes to be the way we we behave. Yep, it, it's it's part and parcel of our lives. In fact, it's so much a part of our lives that we don't even notice it. One of his favorite examples that uh, you may recall from the theory of moral sentiments, which he mentioned several times, is joke telling. He says, um, "Isn't it interesting that there are rules about jokes? There are rules about what jokes are appropriate, what jokes are inappropriate, um, and it's not just that there are rules. That these rules are exquisitely sensitive to context." So a, a joke that might be t completely inappropriate in one context might be perfectly appropriate in another context. And every one of us knows immediately what that is. We, we have a – without even really thinking about it, we're, you can think of jokes that would be inappropriate and appropriate. Um, and not just joke telling. Also, he says, interestingly, laughing at jokes. There are rules about how, how long should you laugh, <laughs> who right. should laugh, when is, it, when is somebody's laughing just a little too long and you start to wonder about somebody. Where do all these rules come from? Well, that little example of joke telling and laughing, he thinks is actually illustrative of much of human life. Same kinds of mechanisms involved there are at work in things like what's appropriate dress. How do you dress appropriately? Well, again, this is exquisitely sensitive to context. Um, and if, you, if I asked you, if we wanted to sit down, I'm going to write down all the rules about appropriate dress. That would be extremely difficult to do, maybe a completely fruitless task. On the other hand, in our everyday behavior, as normally functioning adults, we just know. You have a sense of these things. Can it change over time? Yes. Um, but at any given time, are there rules? Yes. Can you change the rules all on your own? No. Um, but we all make the rules together through but, our interactions. Exactly. And see, I think this insight, that there can be a, a set of um, conventions, rules, a set of order, a system of order, that can arise and emerge from individual behavior, even if none of the individuals involved intended to create a set or a, 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 a larger macro order of rules. Um, that's really the central insight that he hit upon in talking about and investigating moral sensibilities. And so what I think is going on is that Smith, in addition to just trying to understand um, that, that particular area of human, this phenomenon of moral, human moral judgment making, 
what he discovered was a potential explanation, a model that could help explain um, human social institutions of other kinds as well. And this is the, the same model that he brings to bear in trying to understand the human social institutions that we would now recognize as marketplace or economic institutions. Exchange, property, prices. prices <clears throat> um, and that you see him developing and working on in The Wealth of Nations. So um, in my view, this is my argument, the two books are actually united on a very deep level because what, he, what, what Smith is trying to do is to understand human sociality. Human beings are intensely social creatures, and that, and that instinct to form society um, is, is manifested in many different ways. And two of the big ones are um, moral communities on the one hand and um, commercial marketplace exchange communities on the other hand. And those two books are his attempts to understand those two very large areas of human life in terms of the same model that I call them a, a marketplace model. And by marketplace, you explicitly do not mean uh, a farmer's market or a no, place no. where people interact, right. bounce back and forth off each other, talk, exchange ideas, exchange sentiments, exchange right. dollars, exchange – So people have um, – there are a couple of elements. Um, uh, elements. People have um, – first of all, they have their own desires and motivations, whatever they are. We don't have collective motivations or collective desires. You have yours, I have mine. They may overlap, but each of us has his, his or her own. Um, we also act on the basis of what you might call local knowledge. You have your experience, skills, um, you, you, the opportunities available to you that you know about, your schedule of values and preferences, and I have mine. Um, and sometimes those will intersect and coordinate, sometimes they don't. Um, but we're each of us looking to satisfy our own desires, our own interests, our own goals, which are not just I mean, they can be making money or profit, but that's certainly not the only thing they are. There are many other things. Love, happiness, friendship, beauty, all of those are things that are part of the, the, part of the world of things that we're interested in. Um, and we act in ways to try, we try to coordinate our behavior and co community and cooperation with others so that we can have as much of these great things as we can. And in doing so, we hit upon patterns of behavior, upon conventions, upon methods of cooperation that that helps satisfy um, our mutual interests. Um, and that, that's what I call a marketplace model. So that kind of understanding of where these conventions, institutions can come from, as opposed from being um, written by the, the omniscient lawgiver, um, not Solon or someone who wrote down all the laws and we just follow them. Or the it, committee for the whatever. Or the Politburo yeah. or whoever it is. Um, this is – it's um, created and given, given rise to by the people who are, inter who are um, talking with one another, exchanging with one another, communicating with one another um, without any centralized direction and without any single – There's not, it's not necessary that there be any single collective purpose that they all have. They have their individual purposes, but it leads them to form communities that are mutually enriching. And this, so calling it a marketplace model, there are some elements that you will see um, in marketplaces with interchange and exchange, um, individual desires, look, people looking to satisfy it. Um, and I think that's a powerful insight for trying to understand human social institutions generally. So that raises a, a couple of, uh, of deep questions. One I want to just mention, um, which is that for me, as, when, when I teach Smith and when I talk about Smith – for me, the invisible hand is that marketplace, which is a little ironic because Smith's explicit use of the term, which he only does once in each book, really doesn't capture anything close to the richness of what Smith saw, used, 
and he would have been, would have been nice if he'd written <laughs> a little more uh, explicitly, right? His use of the term in the wealth of nations is that it's great for domestic produce. Domestic investors tend to domestic, tend to invest in their local economies rather than far away because there's less certainty. And as when they invest foreign in foreign stuff, so they're led as if by an invisible hand to provide lots of local capital. Uh, in the wealth, in the theory of moral sentiments, he says people's eyes are bigger than their stomachs. They try to accumulate wealth. It doesn't really make them any happier than they are. They can't really consume all the stuff they acquire, but they're led by an invisible hand to create employment opportunities for other people. And and in each of those, if you ask me what's the invisible hand, the answer would be well, the the, the similarity in those two examples is in both cases a person provides some benefits to others that are not his intention. And that's certainly mm -hmm. a part of what you're talking about when you talk about this marketplace model. But of course, it's so much richer. It's this web of interactions that we create with others commercially and morally and spiritually and socially in all kinds of ways that is to me the much richer model of what we should – what we call the invisible hand even though Smith didn't call it that. Yeah. I mean um, you know, now if you ask people um, if, if – um you know, if, for people who've never read either of those books and maybe don't know anything about Adam Smith, is, if there, is there anything you can tell me about Adam Smith? It's Invisible Hand. That's the one thing right. they'll remember, um, which is, as you say, um, a bit surprising given that it's, he only uses the phrase once in each book. And it gets caricatured, I think, by most people as greed is good, which is certainly not uh, what yeah, he meant by the Invisible Hand right. in when he explicitly said it or the implicit uses that we're talking about. No, I agree. Um, but I will say that I think that the that the 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 idea of it. So the phrase only appears once in the Wealth of Nations, um, for example. Um, but the idea is throughout the book; it's everywhere. Um, and if and by idea, if if what you mean by that idea is that um, people can create macro order from micro intentions, that's everywhere. Yeah. And that's really what I think is behind this sort of. I mean, at, at the explanatory or scientific, or if you like, sociological level of what he's trying to do, that's the central insight that people are able to create patterns of order um, without intending to create a pattern of order. What they're intending to do is to get along with one another, to cooperate, to achieve these things we've been talking about, um, and despite or just, themselves, or just get a good deal. The, or the, just the, get a good deal. I mean, so farmers markets are also part of human yeah. uh, human social life. They're just not the only part. Um, but what Smith, I think, is discovering, and um, one of the reasons why I think the Wealth of Nations, I think his work is justly regarded as one of the great works of the West, um, is because he is seeing just how pervasive this is in human life. This creation of, of community, this creation of association and patterns of order without intending to do so. Saying, you know, this phrase, an invisible hand, I mean, I, um, people will disagree about whether God is anywhere. So in the Wealth of Nations, you have many fewer references um, to anything like religion. Um, he's got some ver not very nice things he says about organized religion. No. Um, but um, it's a much less, um, as you might think, uh, it, it doesn't read as if it's infused by a man uh, or written by a man who's infused with religious uh, fervor. Um, and people have wondered, is there some religious notion behind this invisible hand? Um, I, um, I think one of the things that is clear, and people disagree about that, but I think one of the things that is much more much clearer uh, for Smith about this term is that, or about this idea, is that very often, not always. So you know, he, he knows about human history. He knows that a lot of human history is not exactly a cakewalk. People aren't always nice to one another. Sure. He's perfectly aware of that. <laughs> um, but in many more cases than we appreciate, 
the kinds of conventions and associations and communities we generate all on our own are actually beneficial to us. They're beneficial to us in so many ways that we, don't e we aren't even aware of it. And even if you point it out to people, they might still not really fully appreciate. Um, that gives it a kind of um, overall um, beneficent tendency, um, which even if you're not willing or interested in trying to ascribe that ultimately, say, to God's will, that this is God's design or something, um, even if you're not willing to say that, it does seem, I think, in Smith's mind, uh, to tend towards um, satisfying human desires. Now, it doesn't. It's a beautiful description of of um, Smith's overarching worldview in both books. It doesn't quite answer the question, though. And I'm gonna that we started with. So I'm gonna challenge you with that. And then I have even a slightly harder question, which I. I think you raise also in, in your Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life book. The, the first question I want to raise is, oh, that's nice. So both books have this overarching marketplace concept, which is not uh, the way you might traditionally use the word marketplace, but it's about emergent order. It's about things that are created without any one person's design. Um, it's things about our desire to be interactive with each other and social and get along. So why in the one book does he focus on self-interest and why in the other book does he focus on a richer model of human behavior? Why, do, why, is there no, why is there so little overlap in the two books when you look at the model of the individual's motivation and behavior? It's a good question and it's a central question. Um, so in The Wealth of Nations, he says it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, yeah. the baker, um, but it's uh, from their regard to their own interest. Very famous quote. Uh, famous quote. And certainly true. And probably <laughs> true. So, so, uh, but we don't get language quite like that in the theory of moral sentiment. So the question is, why not? What, what, what's different? What's changed? Um, in the theory of moral sentiments, um, there's another element to the psycho psychological profile of human nature that he develops that uh, we haven't mentioned so far. Um, and that is what I, uh, what I call the familiarity principle. And the, uh, what I mean by the familiarity principle is Smith argues that the more familiar we are with another person, that is, the more we know about another person, their hopes and dreams and aspirations, their peccadillos, the things about them that make them who they are, um, the more likely you are to have an actual, uh, a, a natural and actual, a real affection for them. You're more likely to be concerned about their welfare um, if you know more about them. Similarly, the less you know about a person, the less likely, are, likely you are to be concerned about them. Um, now, in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith talks about this principle as it relates and helps explain why it is that we are willing to give our lives even for our children, for our spouse. Um, we're willing to sacrifice a lot, if not quite our lives, for friends. Um, and willing to uh, risk our lives, certainly, for country and And, and other things that tribe. we, yes, um, and, but not for others. Um, and there are some people for whom, so total strangers to us, you're going to be very unlikely to be willing to sacrifice a lot for them, except in extreme circumstances, extraordinary circumstances. Um, so this, thing, this notion of the familiarity principle um, is what Smith employs to help explain that. Uh, um, well, think about uh, the way we interact with other people in marketplaces in economics. Um, right at the beginning of The Wealth of Nations, he's got this beautiful allegory of the woolen coat, he yep. says. Extraordinary. Um, where he says, imagine the woolen coat that the, that the, the, the meanest and lowest day laborer is wearing. Um, he says, ask yourself, how many people had a hand in bringing that, all the materials that were necessary to create that coat together so that this day laborer could wear it? 
and he starts listing them for you. If you and if you haven't looked at that, it's right you know right at the beginning of the Wealth of Nations. Read it again. But he he talks about the 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 wool cutter and dyer and the people who are in the sheep farm and the transport. I mean, once you start running in your mind through all of the people who had some hand in bringing this together, you realize we're not talking about ten people or a hundred people, even in the 18th century already. We were talking about thousands of people who had some hand in creating, bringing together the materials, sewing it up, and making sure that it was available for that day laborer when he bought it and now he can wear it. Um, now, so ask yourself this question. How many of those people know anything at all about each other? Almost none. They're almost all total strangers to one another. So that model is what captures most of the dynamic interaction, Smith thinks, of what goes on in, in large-scale commercial associations. We don't, where there's a division of labor. Where there's extensive division a, of labor, yeah, right. Tribal, local production. Exactly. And that's the difference. So <clears throat> we're transitioning in the 18th century, and right under Smith's nose, what he's witnessing is a transition from um, very small, localized communities to larger-scale communities that are interacting with others in far-flung places around the world. And one of the things, one of the challenges that that's going to pose is that these people are strangers to us. Not Maybe not just strangers. Maybe it's worse. Maybe we think they're, they have the wrong religion, they're, Edens, the, yeah. they're the wrong color, yeah. they're the wrong whatever it is. Um, What's going to enable us to still cooperate with them in such a way that we can get the, that woolen coat for the day laborer? Um, in situations like that, the familiarity principle tells us that our natural instinct will be not to – don't ask yourself um, what, would, uh, uh, what would benefit them personally um, because that's the kind of relationship you have with your spouse, with your friend, with someone you know. When it's a stranger, instead it's a different kind of dynamic, a different set of motivations that's involved. So in the Wealth of Nations, what Smith thinks is that what we do is, in cases like that, we respect what he calls the rules of justice, which are very simple. The rules don't of justice, um, <laughs> don't kill anybody, yeah. don't steal from anybody, and honor your promises, honor your contracts. Beyond that, um, all of our mutual interaction will pretty much be based on what, is, what will satisfy our, int our individual interests. The beauty of those large-scale, far-flung cooperative ventures, these things called markets, is that um, even if people aren't acting with actual love towards one another, you love your children and your, your spouse, not the person that you don't even know on the other side of the earth who's helping make your, your goods and services. Um, so in that case, we're acting, both of us are acting with respect to our own self-interest, what's going to give us the biggest return on our investments and how can we get what we would like, whatever it is, um, and the markets can coordinate that. They can channel that self-interest in such a way that I don't have to go conquer somebody, kill them to get what I want. Um, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is want what you would like, cooperate with other people who, um, uh, who are act acting on their own local knowledge, on their own self-interest, and this can give rise to a much larger scale of cooperation and a much greater level of satisfying of human interests. So the wealth of nations is about that kind of cooperation and that kind of um, large-scale um, satisfaction of human society. And that naturally will be based um, primarily, although not exclusively, but primarily on self-interest. So I think that really explains the difference um, in the, the different tones of, and uh, discussions of motivations in the two books. It's interesting that Hayek in The Fatal Conceit, a quote that, that I've, we've mentioned a number of times on the program, uh, is really a different way of saying this, which is it's interesting he doesn't reference Smith. Uh, you know, he says basically when we're dealing with our family and we have to – he says we have to be schizophrenic. He says we're dealing with our family 
and our friends, uh, we act one way. And if we act that way, to we, we'd like to take that motivation to society at large, but that leads to tyranny, says, and, and death. And similarly, if we take the motivations of the strangers and the interactions we have commercially, we try to bring them into the family, we ruin our families. Right. And I, I think Smith's saying, he's not literally saying it, but it's the same point, which is um, we obviously treat our friends and family very differently than we treat the butcher and the baker. Now, if it's a small town, the butcher and baker starts to become part of If we interact with them a lot, it becomes we learn about their flaws and mm-hmm. and and then the relationship might change. It gets a little different and and or if the butcher is your brother-in-law right. and then you know things might be a little different. He might advance me some money that he wouldn't do in a in a right. big city where uh, he's not as trusting and and confident I'll pay it back. Right. And not as concerned uh, and more concerned that I'll pay it back. Um so that 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 is as one way to think about it. Now there's there's a harder part to the Adam Smith problem, which I think I got from you in your book, you can correct me. If, although I may have read it more recently than you. Um, <laughs> when did the When did the Marketplace of Life come out? Adam Smith's uh, two thousand two. Okay, uh, I read it about three months ago. Um, but but there's this other seeming inconsistency in Smith, which is which is related to what we you've called the Adam Smith problem, which is the following: in the theory of moral sentiments, he says in many places. That the striving after wealth is a fool's game, that acquiring stuff, trying to get rich, the beggar in the sunshine can be just as happy as the rich man. He has a lot to say about the happiness literature uh, that's that's 200 years down the road. Um, and yet in The Wealth of Nations, he talks about all the virtues of, of people trying to better themselves and how that leads to growth, which is, of course, the fundamental focus of that book. Why is there growth? Modest as it was, right? He, he, the irony of the book to me is – one of the ironies is that he, he's, he's on the cusp of the greatest explosion of the wealth of nations that, that we've ever known and that right. human history would ever see. And he, he's talking about such a small little incline when an enormous mountain is, is coming of, of, of growth. Um, but he seems to be a little bit schizophrenic about whether the human – which he accepts the human desire for acquisition, whether that's healthy or not healthy. Yeah, um, and that may well have been an actual development in his thought. Um, so this passage about the beggar on the side of the road, um, enjoying as much um, in peace uh, that the kings are fighting for, and um, I mean, it, there's a certain romanticism yes, that's going is. on there <laughs> about uh, about what the life of a poor person really is like. Um, that uh, we might forgive him for for um, when he's writing as a young man. That, um, um, but I, I think and here's one place where I will raise a criticism of Smith that I think is a legitimate criticism to raise. In the theory of moral sentiments, he seems to equate happiness with a kind of tranquility, serenity, yeah, comfort um, with, with awareness of what being content, yeah. not striving for more. Um, and, Certainly not striving for celebrity and fame, which he uses oh yes, no, that's those are totally other other kinds of pathologies yeah, that get involved yeah. there. But if your view of happiness, of true human happiness, is a kind of uh, stoic, not quite apathy, but a, but a tranquility or a contentment with, well, um, then that's going to make certain kinds of strivings um, look foolish to you. Um, and there is a strain of that in the theory of moral sentiments. Um, and you know, thinking about um, what, we would, you know, what we can take from Smith today, I think that's something that Smith might have gotten wrong. That part, in the following way. Um, Tranquility in the sense of leisure, not really doing anything, 
Um, if contemporary investigations into what makes people happy has told us anything reliable, um, what, it's that tranquility and leisure and doing nothing is not it. Um, those are poisonous to human happiness. People need to be doing things. Uh, now, not just anything. They need to be doing things that have a purpose and that um, that they connect. They, they can see what the purpose is. They believe in it. They're also good at it. You know, there are many aspects of what can make a, a person happy. Um, but tranquility probably is not it, uh, at least understood in that sense of just leisure or not doing very much. Sunning yourself on the side of the road. Right. That's not a happy life. Um, and for uh, for most people, that's not going to be a happy life. And probably for most of the beggars sunning themselves, if, if Smith had asked them, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have said, "No, I want this. I don't want what other people what other people have." Um, so that's probably something of a romantic flourish in Smith. But there is this issue. The other thing you asked about was the dis notion of deception. And that's something that's interesting in Smith. In the Theory of Moral Sentiments, he says, you remember this parable about the, the poor man's son. Yeah. So he said, the poor man's son, uh, whom heaven in its anger has visited with ambition. Yeah. He looks around his, uh, the, the, uh, the low and, and mean accommodations of his father's cottage, and he says, well, this isn't good enough for me. Right. I don't want to live in this cottage. I want to live in the big mansion that those people down the road live in. And so Smith says, so what does this person, this young man do? Well, he spends years engaged in a lot of toil and labor, trying to accumulate the means that will enable him to have the bigger house and also lots of other stuff, golden ear pickers and, and special devices for cutting your nails and all of these fancy Conveniencies, things. Conveniences, he calls them, I think. That's right. Gadgets. Um, so Smith says, trinkets. yeah, all of these trinkets. So Smith says you know, at the end of the, the, the parable, as it's coming to a close, he says, so what happens? So he spends all of these years working. Um, and now let's suppose that he's gotten, he's got, he's accumulated the means, he's bought for himself these trinkets, um, these conveniences. Um, and Smith asks, does the utility that those things gave, give him now, does that actually repay any kind of objective, in an objective calculation, does it actually repay all of the labor he put in to get them? And Smith says the answer is almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. Um, and he calls this a deception. Nature deceives us in this way. Um, now, what's interesting is that Smith says, um, uh, after he tells this story, he says, but it's really a good thing that nature deceives us like this. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> because it's this ambition yep. that has led to the building of um, of temples and bridges and it's, uh, you know, all civilization, of the, to civilization. Basically. It's, um, it's people are, so they become more enamored really with the, as Smith thinks, they become more enamored really with the idea of creating big, new, interesting, innovative things than um, just strictly doing the cost-benefit analysis, and it's a good thing they don't. But it's hard to understand how Smith can feel that way, right? Because he's just said that it's all dross, you know? It's just, uh, what's the big deal? And I guess the answer would be there that there's a difference between a, uh, artificial heart and a iPad, right? An iPad's lovely, uh, but it's not as important as an artificial heart, but the urge to make both is coming from the same human place, yeah. I guess, would be the argument. Yeah, and I, and I think that, um, you know, if you thought that the, the true human happiness was in contentment, was in tranquility, well, then all that striving really would be just totally pointless. Um, he says something quite similar to that explicitly in his, uh, the parable about the, the king's favorite who – when the, yeah. the favorite says to the king, you know, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to do all this conquering stuff, and he has all these plans, and then finally says, and when you've done all that, what are you going to be able to do? So I'll be able to sit around with some friends and have a good, a good 
conversation over a bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah. And he says, and what's stopping you from doing that right now? And the answer is nothing. So why don't you just enjoy the bottle of wine right. and don't go through all the trouble? Yeah. And the answer is we like to do stuff. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and that's something that I think Smith came to understand uh, more than he did earlier on in his life. That uh, human happiness is not uh, – that, uh, that a part of being happy for human beings, maybe not true for other creatures, but for human beings, um, we need to be active and doing things. And there isn't probably going to come a time in many of our lives, at least not really in our lives, when we just stop and say, okay, I have enough now. I don't want anything else. It's just not part of human nature. Um, so even if it doesn't directly repay um, um, and in some kind of, as I say, the cost-benefit analysis – um, tranquility probably isn't the uh, the important part of uh, human happiness that Smith, at least earlier in his life, thought it was. Let me ask you a sociological question. Um, how much of you know the way again I think of the theory of moral sentiments? Uh, these these two worlds: the world of strangers versus the world of friends and intimates or family. You know, Smith swam in a certain set of Scottish circles, right? Uh, a very rarefied bit of water. Um, it's the great intellectuals of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the people whose respect he wanted and earned, presumably um, with with his achievements and his insights and his company. Um, it's not in seventeen seventy six, seventeen fifty nine, seventeen ninety. That world is not a very typical world for the human race of its day. Um, he was really, again, on the cusp of something that was going to become more common, which would be the prosperity that allowed the middle, a middle class to emerge. It was just starting to emerge in in in, in uh, Britain. So how universal are those insights? In particular, one thing I always think about is when I think about the impartial spectator, and, and I, I alluded to this earlier, he was hanging out with some pretty decent people. So – to be respected by them, you had to be a pretty decent person yourself. We could imagine a different set of impartial spectators who maybe would feel differently about what was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, um, it's, a, it's a real and deep question. Um, are there – is there an objectivity to the moral standards that develop in the way that um, Smith explained, um, at least on my interpretation he actually, he of He writes as if, as if there is. He writes as if there is. So um, there are a couple of things we can say on his behalf, I think, even today looking back you know, um, a couple of centuries later. Um, some aspects of human nature seem to be relatively fixed. So even accepting the theory of evolution, you know, evolution doesn't happen um, in periods of decades or even hundreds of years. It, it happens over – Thousands and thousands of years. So for all intents and purposes, human nature is probably pretty much the same in the 18th century as it is in the 21st century. Um, And what are the things that matter? Well, it's a couple of – so here are a couple of claims you'd have – that Smith makes that you'd have to accept. Um, We live in a world of scarce resources. Um, We desire mutual sympathy of sentiments with people we care about. Um, we have, um, we tend to be more concerned about the people we know more about than the people we don't, uh, we know less about. Um, we have benevolence, but it's limited. And, um, we usually can be counted on to act in our own self-interest as we might imperfectly understand it. Um, you put those things together, um, and you're going to have a lot of, you're going to be able to explain a lot of human social, uh, social life, um, in the 18th century and in the 21st century. 
Um, and that's also going to explain why there will be quite a bit of overlap in moral codes that different communities will develop. Because it doesn't matter, whatever the geographical or climatological or other differences among communities, um, those things will be the same for all of those, uh, those uh, for all of the humans in those communities. So there'll be quite a bit of overlap. So there's a good bet, Smith would have argued, there's a good bet that central aspects of our moral communities, like respecting the rules of justice, so things like don't kill innocent people. Now, we might disagree about what counts as an innocent person. Okay. But central parts of our moral code, like don't kill innocent people, um, don't steal from people unless you have um, special circumstances or cause, those things all communities are going to hit upon because you won't be able to have a community if people don't respect those rules with one another. So that's not something that we can, that Smith is going to deduce from first principles um, of reason. He's just looking at the kinds of creatures we are and the kinds of circumstances that we exist, and those sorts of rules are going to be fairly common. But throughout human history, even modern human history, when we often delude ourselves into thinking we've somehow advanced mm. – um, with, with or without evolution, um, we've somehow – we're better than the people of the 1770s say. There's racism. There's anti-Semitism um, in, in um, the South in 1840. You earn the respect of – if you're a white person, you earn the respect of your fellow planters by looking down on uh, African slaves as subhuman. And similarly in Germany or Poland of the 1930s say that's the way you might look at Jews. The, the other is uh, somehow got a different set of rules. Um, now the other is I think in disrepute these days. It's socially unacceptable uh, that we have a more egalitarian bent at least right now. That could always change. But I, I do see societies where the impartial spectator leads people to – to cruelty and, and abuse of, of folks who are not like them, yeah. who are people aren't who aren't they, they who I don't know they argue they are not familiar with right. You don't know whether what you how you would describe the relationship between a, a slave owner and a slave whether that falls anywhere near the familiarity principle that, that Smith was talking about. Yeah, no, it's a it, it's a it's a real concern and an and an enduring part of human society. Um, lamentable. I mean, this goes back to this point um, that we mentioned a little earlier about um, Hayek and Smith. Um, the way my friend uh, uh, Dave Rose, the economist Dave Rose, puts it is that uh, we are a small group species um, who are engaged in large group interactions. Yeah. And that's really one of the central enduring problems of political philosophy. How do we put those two things together? Many of our instincts and impulses are um, – our psychological instincts and uh, impulses are to um, favor um, the, the people we know, the people in our group and to disfavor and distrust the people who are outside that group. Um, and that seems to be something that's very deep-seated in our psychological makeup, uh, maybe part of an early part of our brains. Yeah, um, for sure. And um, you know, so that may be just something that's enduring that we're going to have to continue to deal with. And it can, in fact, has, as you say. It, it can lead to um, what we might now think of or might more in, in an enlightened age think of as perversions of what we would like the impartial spectator yeah. to actually approve of. A simple way to say it is not all emergent orders are attractive. Oh, yeah. Some emergent yeah. orders are unattractive. Absolutely. Uh, having said that, um, one of the things that's remarkable about Smith, so although he doesn't write about that, I think it, to, to be fair to him, he, he's a remarkably unprejudiced person in that he respected uh, – with extraordinary universality, 
the dignity of individuals regardless of their um, yeah. say their national or, nation, national origins which in his day would was was very rare right yeah. Yeah. people sure. would often put down a, a particular country's people as inferior inadequate incapable of ruling their own lives um, right um, and that was the um, the justification brought forward for all sorts of imperialisms and other kinds of I mean, uh, right at the uh, near the beginning of the Wealth of Nations, Smith makes an extraordinary, I mean, really a radical claim that to the modern ear, to our ear, we read it now, your eye passes over it, you don't think twice about it. Um, but what he said was that, um, he said, the differences, the natural differences between the philosopher and the street porter um, aren't nearly as great as you might think. And much of it is owing more to education and training than to anything in natural... Well, that would have been yeah. just, I mean, really? <laughs> it's a shocking yeah, statement. It's yeah. shocking to say. In a class, in a society with as much class distinction as that's his, right. um, that was and, a radical statement. Yeah, and distinctions that were that were perceived to be um, deeply natural and maybe even intended by God or the deity, that, the, that these are clear categorical differences. For him to say that we're roughly the same in our, um, by nature, um, that's really uh, quite, a, quite a claim to make. Very modern uh, claim. A very modern claim. So modern readers, the, yeah. eye, the yeah. eye passes right over it. Um, but so the question, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult issue, but um, I, I guess what I would say is thinking of it now, um, bringing Smith's thought into the 21st century, the question would be, um, how do we deal with these divisions? What's the best way to deal with them? If, if it really is part and parcel of human nature that we divide the world into us's and them's, um, and sometimes doing so can be beneficial, um, it can lead to, say, competition that's friendly and good, and everybody's all, all boats are, you know, they, they all go up with the rising tide. Other times it's not so beneficial um, and good and can and lead in extreme circumstances to absolutely terrible behaviors. How do we address this? What's the best way to mitigate this and to steer more of the competitive behavior and the us versus them into productive channels as opposed to unproductive channels? Well, one way is to allow and even encourage um, more and more interaction on more and more levels with people who are different from us. And that's the commercial order. That's what the commercial order does. It makes us all deeply and pervasively interdependent on one another. So even if in your heart of hearts you really don't like people who have those views or those beliefs or look like that, um, you may come to see that you're actually dependent on them. And, uh, and that they in, help, in, they serve you. In, in various important ways. Yeah. And they'll th see the same thing about you. Now, Will that get rid of animosities? No. Um, there will, we are fallen creatures after all, um, and we're imperfect, and there will always be – so we, we shouldn't ever compare what we're proposing to perfection because that's impossible. You have to think about what's the best among the actually available alternatives. And um, I think the Smithian today would say um, market and commercial orders, while always imperfect, people will still always make mistakes, and there will be you know these kinds of divisions. Rough dealing. There will be yes, there will <laughs> be rough dealing. dealing that's yeah. true. Um, but on the other hand, there are lots of incentives to mitigating and softening those edges and encouraging um, cooperation that's actually mutually beneficial and discouraging um, interactions that are antagonistic or uh, or that are mutually destructive. We're we're a little over time, but I'd like to give you a chance to talk about uh, in your new book, Adam Smith. You talk about what Smith got right and wrong. So why don't we close with that, uh, if we can? I don't know how long the the list will go. Whether I'll agree with all of it, take a shot at it. Well, there's a long list of things Smith got right, I think, um, <laughs> and a much shorter list of things he got wrong, yeah. um, which is really to his uh, enormous credit, I think, and um, which helps justify his position in the canon of great thinkers. Um, one of the things that I suggest in that book that he got wrong, I already mentioned, and that's uh, his notion of happiness as tranquility. There, I think he's, he made a mistake there. 
Um, one other thing I'll mention that I think that um, that uh, he uh, that the consensus is now that he got wrong about was um, his notion of the dependence of value on labor. Yep. He seemed to think that uh, human labor was something that was sort of universally quantifiable. We could measure yep. units of labor and that the value of goods or values of services could be understood in terms of labor. Um, and that that notion, I think I'm right. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think no, I'm right in saying that uh, modern <laughs> economics has completely um, thrown that over. Um, and um, that's probably one thing that uh, Marx learned from Smith. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think Smith might actually have had what I would call a subjective labor theory of value, which is a little bit more um, subtle and maybe not quite as um, obviously wrong as, uh, say, the Marxian version. But um, uh, in any case, I think that probably was uh, a wild goose chase, trying to yep. figure out uh, how value could connect to labor. Um, but the list of things that he got right, that's very long. And I'll uh, just mention two quick things. Um, one is, as you were saying earlier, um, he was writing right at the cusp of the beginning of what we might think of as global uh, market societies. So he really had no way of knowing what kinds of things that Mark, I mean, who could have, who could possibly have imagined the kinds yeah. of things that markets could provide for us and the ways that markets could allow for us to um, to raise our level of standards of living, all the goods and services. There's no way he could have known. Um but he did make um, he did seem to have a kind of optimism that the extent to which we allowed things like free trade, we respected people's property, all people's, even the lowest and least among us, their property too, and we give people a wide scope of latitude to do with their own labor, time, talents, treasures, possessions as they individually see fit, good things will come. Um, and he did seem to have, and this is my view, he did seem to have an optimism that things will work out. I might not be able to predict exactly what will happen, but I think things will work out and probably better than they would have worked out if we empowered a man of system, as he calls it, or some central planner to organize all of our efforts, all of our labors. Um, and boy, I think he was right in spades. I think history has absolutely vindicated that more than he could possibly hmm. have imagined. Sure. Um, and, um, and, even if everything else he said was wrong, that one, um, that one uh, view about um, the benefits of commercial society and a limited but powerful government, powerful in those few things that it does, protecting property, person, um, that has enabled millions, even hundreds of millions of people to ascend out of desperate poverty. Um, that all by itself would justify his place in the canon. Um, but there's one other thing I'll mention, um, which is uh, maybe we would appreciate a little less today, and that is this idea about the mutual sympathy of sentiments. Um, modern researchers have rediscovered this idea and think he might well have been right about that, mm -hmm. um, that this seems to be something that is a, a fundamental feature of human nature, that we do want to have enjoy a concord or a harmony with other people's sentiments. We seek it out. We don't like it when we don't have it. Um, and this may be um, a, a deep and important aspect of human nature and also um, an important explanation for many of the kinds of society that we actually have. My guest today has been Jim Otteson. Jim, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.